try to tackle verses 31 through 62 today, um, and just want to set a scene a little bit before we get into this. Remember from last week, we have Jesus um, celebrating a Passover meal with his disciples. Um, that's the time where they remembered that they were people who um, had come out of you know, Egypt, um, that God had used Moses to liberate the people, um, the Hebrew people, and to bring them out. Uh, from their slavery and captivity in the land of Egypt. Um, and so they would remember this Passover that God in his judgment um, of the Egyptians passed over uh, them and did not um, put that wrath on them if they were um, covered by the blood of the lamb. We see that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. Um, and at that supper, he institutes what we have today in the bread and the cup. Um, that we take to remember Jesus, that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb um, who would go to the cross for our sins. And so the bread represents his body and the cup you know, represents um, his blood. And so we see this um, you know, intimate meeting that Jesus has with his disciples as he shares this last meal with them. And it's at this event that... Um, Judas you know, is, you know, leaves to go and... and uh, set into, into motion his full betrayal of Jesus that's already been partially um, arranged. And so uh, I was just thinking about the importance of that. I had, I had the uh, privilege to go to a Nigerian um, wedding in, a, in Atlanta on uh, Friday night. And um, you know, even though it said it wasn't going to start on Nigerian time, it, it definitely started on Nigerian time. So after being there for a while and waiting for things to begin... It was just interesting to watch how they did their processions in. But they had the, um, in the banquet room, they had the two families sit at these long tables across from each other. And the bride's family took, um, they took this like dried fruit and they broke it up. And they had that sent over to the, you know, groom's family. And then the two families would, you know, in in their original tongues would say these words, you know, back and forth um, to each other. Um, and you know this in this sort of traditional way, um, and it just it just kind of reminded me that um, you know the the importance of of sharing food together, of sharing meals together. That it's not just you know atoms that we are sitting there preparing and putting together and eating, but there it, it's deeper than that. When you share a meal with someone, um, there is there is you know fellowship involved with that and. You know, to obviously to varying degrees, depending on the circumstances. You know, you could have a, a business luncheon um, that only gets so intimate. You know, but there is something about being face to face that even in despite our time of you know technology and go to meeting and all these sort of things, you cannot. Um, you know, in business, people still travel because you cannot recreate that sitting in the same physical space and you know sharing a meal together. You can't. You can't recreate that on GoToMeeting or, um, you know, one of these other internet services. Um, and so there's just something special about that, but there's also something even um, more awful in the betrayal, um, 
you know, of Judas, that it's, you know, we read in John that it's after Jesus, you know, dips, you know, the bread and gives it to Judas and Judas partakes of it, that Judas then leaves and goes, you know, to put his betrayal, you know, in motion. And it just sets that even as a little bit, you know, more of a, of a, of a there's a, a harshness um, to, to that event. Um, and so here we are in Luke chapter 22. Before we begin, let's go ahead and um, go to Lord in prayer, and we'll pick up in verse 31. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here this morning um, to worship you and to praise you. We pray we would do so in spirit and in truth. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word and that we can see everything that happened and we can learn from it. I pray that we would know you, God, um, fully with both our minds, but with our hearts, our spirits, Lord, that um, it would be a deep and intimate knowledge of you, God. And um, Lord, we just pray that you would teach us from your word this morning. Thank you for sending us uh, your unique son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins and to be raised from the dead. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray these things this morning. Amen. Okay, so let's pick up now as we're continuing this scene. There's still... You know, in the upper room, there's, you know, we have the end of the meal. And it, Jesus says in verse 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Okay, let's stop there for a moment and just make sure we have this scene well in our head because it's going to come into play uh, more later on. But, okay, so this is, you know, Jesus having a conversation with Simon Peter. Uh, and so, you know, Jesus referred to him, you know, both ways. He does so here in this passage. First, he starts by calling him Simon, and then he starts by, you know, continues by calling him Peter, and um, maybe Simon's a little bit more formal, and Peter's a little bit, you know, perhaps a little bit more um, of an intimate word that, you know, name that Jesus calls him, um, you know, showing the, the closest of you, the relationship, but he says, you know, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Um, it's interesting to note that the first, you know, he says Satan has asked for you, it's a plural Basically meaning, you know, the disciples, all the disciples. Um, you know, perhaps it reminds of going back to the book of Job in the Old Testament where, you know, Satan comes before God and says, you know, Job, you know, he only follows you because you do good things for him. Um, and, you know, so he gets permission to, to test, um, you know, the, the reality of, of Job's faith. And, and whether it's based on just the material blessing or on a true spiritual reality. And, um, you know, this here, again, we, ha- we have to recognize that, uh, you know, Satan certainly can do evil things in, the, in our world, but his power is, is limited. And especially if you are a follower of God, if you are a follower of Jesus, you can be assured that, you know, nothing can touch you unless God is okay with that. Um, and so sometimes we under- wonder, okay, God, why are you okay with that? Um, but at the same time, we trust God, you know, and that God here is going to use these events um, in the life of, of Peter to, 
um, ultimately make him a better disciple, even though it's going to be a tough road, you know, to go down. And so, um, he says, Satan says, you know, has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And that, again, is plural, all the disciples. But then he says, I have prayed for you, and that you is singular. So, basically, in this conversation, um, Jesus is, sell, is telling Simon Peter, listen, he's going to test all of you, but I've prayed for you specifically. It's not that he hasn't prayed for the others. We know already um, from the Gospel of John that there's this longer dialogue that happens um, where we see the prayer of Jesus you know, for his disciples. And so we know he's prayed for all of them, but here he's having this kind of moment with Peter saying, you know, I've prayed for, for you specifically that your faith should not fail And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So it's like, I pray that your faith wouldn't fail, but it's going to fail. You know, you're you're going to to fall. And when you've returned from me, strengthen your brethren. I'm not done with you. It's not going to be the end of the story. And so here, you know, Jesus knows what's going to happen. But, um, you know, Peter doesn't. And perhaps later on in his life, this thinking back on this conversation will give him you know, some more strength um, and confidence and remind him of his purpose to strengthen his brethren. But, you know, Peter, um, he has this um, relationship with, with Jesus that uh, is, is pretty unique. Uh, and it's a part of it's, you know, just driven on Peter's, you know, personality. You know, in the, in the group of disciples, he tends to be, you know, the first one to, you know, say, you know, what, truly what he's thinking. You know, he doesn't have um, the biggest filter or, or that much of a filter. It's just out there. Here's what, I, here's what I feel. Here's what I think. Boom. You know, and perhaps some of the other ones are a little bit more reserved. Um, but we see this in him. Remember, you know, when Jesus is walking on the water, um, you know, toward their boat, and, you know, Peter realizes it's Jesus, and, and he's the one who says, you know, Lord, let me come to you. You know, the other ones were, you know, Happy to just sit there in the boat. Peter wants to get on the water and do what Jesus is doing and walk on the water. You know, you can see that intensity in his life. And so here we have another example of that. He's, he's like, fail? What are you talking about fail? You know, I'm ready. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. You know, in his mind, he's like, you know, I'm not going to fail. I'm ready to go all the way with you to Jesus. If that means going to prison, I'll go to prison. If that means going to death, I'll go to death. You know, that's how he, you know, that's how he feels in this moment. And so, boom, it's out there. And then Peter, Jesus lets him know, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And the conversation ends there. And, and you can imagine, like, Peter being a little bit conflicted because he knows Jesus is a truth teller. And Jesus is God, and Jesus is right. You know, he's the Messiah, he's the Savior. And yet, you also, you know, knowing Peter there in, and seeing, you know, his tendencies, you have to imagine that he's still in his heart going, uh-uh, I'm going all the way with Jesus. I'm going to be there. But, you know, the conversation, you know, it does end the conversation. And he says, Jesus said to them, verse 34, we'll pick up there, we'll read 34, through 38, he says, He said to them, When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, Nothing. Then he said to them, But now 
He who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that which is written must still be accomplished in me. Quote, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And so they said, look, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough or um, enough of this. And so let's take a moment and, and look at this. And if we, were, if we remember back, um, earlier Jesus sends out his disciples and he tells them, you know, don't take a money bag, don't take an extra coat, don't take, you know, these provisions. Like God's going to provide, you know, you're going to be provided for as you go. Um, and so uh, now he's letting them know that, you know, the environment has, has changed where, you know, they, where they've been welcomed into someone's home. Now they might not be so welcome. You know, the, the environment um, has shifted you know, a little bit. Uh, and that's part of it. But the main thing that we need to get here um, is that Jesus is going to fulfill um, what was said by the prophet of Isaiah 600 years before, Isaiah 53, 12, about Jesus being numbered with the transgressors, that he's going to be, you know, he would be viewed as, you know, a, a rebel. Um, you know, he would be as someone who was, you know, perhaps, you know, going to cause an insurrection or, um, you know, some sort of uh, thing as this, that he would be numbered with those sorts um, of people. And because we need to remember even at this time, um, and, you know, around the time of Jesus, you know, you go 100 years before and, you know, even somewhat after, you would have these, you know, rebellions that would take place where, you know, someone would rise up as a, a leader and try to get the people to revolt, you know, against the Roman, you know, occupation. And so Jesus could be viewed as one that's like trying to do that sort of thing. He's going to be numbered, counted as one of those types of people. But, um, you know, th- this is one of those passages and that I, I need to say just a couple things about real quick. Because, you know, last week we talked about the lens which we view Scripture and how we read Scripture. And, you know, to understand, you know, the culture and the language and, you know, the times and that we understand what, what was meant you know, to the original audience so that we can have the right sort of applications for us today. Because sometimes people will take these verses and say, you know, see, Jesus said to buy us a, a sword. So, you know, this gives me, you know, permission for the, you know, I've, I've got enough weapons in my home to like, you know, arm a militia. You know, so, the, I, you know, these verses give me permission to, to do that because Jesus said go buy a sword if you don't have one. You know, and and you know, kind of read in through a lot of through a, through a completely different culture and a different way of viewing the world and a different way of viewing safety and security and all these sort of things back into what Jesus is saying here. You know, I would contend with you that Jesus isn't isn't giving any sort of teaching here about pacifism or just war theory. Or, you know, using uh, physical force or violence as, you know, your first response in any sort of conflict. And that, you know, followers of Jesus should make sure that they're well armed. Don't think that that's appropriate to do with the scripture here. The main thing that, that is going to be accomplished is that the prophecy concerning Jesus himself as the Messiah is going to be fulfilled, and further evidence of who Jesus is. 
So I don't think that these verses teach us today very much about what position we should have, whether we should be pacifist or just war theorist or, you know, hey, might makes right. Doesn't really, not, not there. Because, I mean, even you think about one thing, there's 12 of them now at this point. Judas has already left, so you have 11 disciples and you have Jesus. Uh, you have two swords. You got two swords, you know, that's one per six people. You know, that's exa- not exactly the way you arm yourself to go about, you know, f- winning a battle. Now, we also know Jesus is here. He needs no sword. He, he you know, speak the word of his mouth. Is much power, more powerful than anything any human has ever been capable of or any army has ever been capable of. He is the very word of God. By definition, his power is unlimited. These are sorts of things we need to be reminded of. And I'll come back to this just a little bit more, you know, at the, at the end. But my point with it is just basically, you know, there's a beautiful story here. Don't lose that in an effort to try to take a, you know, a, a political position or a uh, position having to do with something that this isn't, re- you know, isn't really about. That's, that's where we end up, can, we can get lost, you know, in it. Um, and so we have to be careful in, in how we um, approach the scripture. So let's move on. And so they go out, verse 39, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples. He found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And it's a pretty intense scene. We see they're at the Mount of Olives, and this, you know, Mount of Olives was just a, a little bit of a distance away from Jerusalem, but it, you know, it went up, um, you know, a couple hundred meters ab- above Jerusalem, and so from there you could see, you know, this beautiful view of the city and of the temple and you know of everything that's there. And you know, on this Mount of Olives, you know, there's you know, an olive, you know, grove, a garden. There's a, you know, going to be an olive press that's nearby where they would crush the olives, you know, to, to make the olive oil. And um, this is the place, it says, as he was accustomed, you know, it was a place that he would go and pray. You know, Luke often records, um, you know, the prayer life of Jesus, that he would take time alone despite, you know, the busyness of, you know, his ministry and how, you know, people were pressing in on him. And I'm sure, you know, he was physically tired, but yet oftentimes we see him, you know, go to pray. And that's a lesson, you know, for, for us, certainly. And they, you know, see the other 11, they come and they, they follow him. 
Um, and he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So he expects that they're going to be praying, and he's going awful ways. You know, it says about a stone's throw. Not sure who's throwing the stone, so I don't know exactly how far that is. But, you know, not that far. But he goes, you know, to be by himself to pray. He says, he kneels down. And it says, he says this, and this is, you know, really interesting for us. He says, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You know, some people ask, well, if Jesus is, you know, God, then why is he praying this sort of prayer? You know, what, is, what does this mean? What is, what is the point of all this? And, you know, we have to remember that while Jesus is fully God, he's also fully human. Um, and in his humanity, he has made himself, you know, as the, the you know, below his father and that, you know, his, his father has the authority. Um, and to be like us, it's a necessary position for him to be in. Because we are all under, you know, the, uh, God is higher. So we are all under the authority of God. For Jesus to be like us, he also has to experience you know, these things as we experience them, to be under God's authority, to be, um, to be in, a, in a place of, um, you know, of anguish. You know, he's experiencing, he knows what it is, you know, to be, to be human, what it is to be hungry, what it is to be thirsty, um, what it is um, to be emotionally, you know, distraught. And he says, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Last week we talked about in the Passover, there are these you know, different types of cups, you know, a cup of you know, preparation, and a cup of remembering God's judgment on you know, the Egyptians um, in that time. Of course, remember, God also has a plan for those people. Um, but, and so we have these different types of cups, and this one that Jesus is going to take, is a, he's going to receive a cup of suffering. You know, this cup that he's going to take is going to be, um, you know, the, where because we know sin separates us from God and he takes us on our sin on himself, you know, that, that fellowship that has been united for all of eternity between the Father and the Son is now you know, going to ex- experience separation. We know that, that that cup is going to be, the, you know, the wrath of God poured out on him in our place for our sins. So it is a cup of suffering, a cup of agony. And so, of course, this would be something preferable not to experience. We can all guess, grab that in, in, you know, in our humanity, right? Right? And we said, hey, okay, you will, you will be mocked, you will be beaten, you will be spit upon, they will pound a crown of thorns in your head and beat, you know, your back. To, and you, I mean, you will almost look unhuman. And then you will be nailed, you know, to a cross. And that's just the physical side of it. Of course, any of, of us would say, Lord, if there's another way, let's take another way. Or if this can be avoided, let's avoid this. It says he was strengthened, but he says he's in agony. 
And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And, you know, I, I think, um, you know, it, it's one of these, these things that I don't think that any of us can say, well, I know what that is. But if you have had, you know, traumas in, in your life, you know, with the, you know, the death of loved ones, especially, you know, unexpected death or tragic death, um, or you've been in a, a situation of intense, you know, pressure, I, I think you know what it is to, to be weak and to be on your knees before God and to weep. I know we have people in this room who have experienced those sorts of, of things. Some more so than others, and, you know, again, we don't wish that anyone would experience these things. But, you know, word for, for you know, young people, you know, I meet many times young people, and, you know, some of the people think, well, I, I, I know all a lot about life, I know all these things, you know, I've got these degrees, and I've, I know all these theories, and I've, you know, of science, or all these theories of psychology, or all these theories of whatever, and I've studied all this history, and I know this or that and the other thing. And then, you know, we need to ask some other questions. Have you been with someone when they've died? You know, have you experienced loss and grief at a deep, personal, intimate level? And then we go, okay, you know, if you haven't, then your experience is limited, just limited. You know, because meantime, you know, there's a, there's a difference between, a, you know, a book knowledge and an experiential knowledge. You know, you can you can know people are poor. Has you, have you sat on the ground with poor kids that are hungry? That's a different understanding. Have you been hungry? Like really hungry? You know, you know, most of us have never been really, really hungry. And so, can we say, oh, I, I know what poverty is? You know, we, theoretically, you know, book definition, we can understand, this is what poverty is. But until you're, if you haven't lived it, you know, there's different levels of experience. Being with someone else who is experiencing it is one thing. But that's not even that's not what they're experiencing that they're having themselves. Can't say you really know unless you've done it. You know, so Jesus, we can say if anybody knows what it is to be human, it's Jesus. He's the one who knows what it is to be human. Because he's in agony, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He is in extreme anguish. It says, he rose up from prayer, he came to the disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. You know, they have some sense of what is happening, and it's exhausting. And they're not able to overcome their exhaustion. You know, they, they've, 
they curl up and fall asleep. You know, I think sometimes sleep is, um, you know, you, you remember back in, in the story of Jonah in the boat, and he had run from God, and he knows things are fractured and with God, and that things are, he's not, he knows he's not in a good place. And there's this huge storm, and where do they people find Jonah? They find him down at the bottom of the ship asleep, in a deep sleep, because there's a certain escape that sleep brings. That's how, I mean, how do you get the mind to stop thinking about all these other, you know, the problems and the difficulties and the stress and all that? Sleep. And so that's where you find these disciples is like they go and they're, they're sleeping. It says, and why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into, into temptation. It's like he understands their weakness. He understands the, why they're doing what they're doing. And so he, you don't see him being, you know, he, he's not um, harsh with them, but he's just letting them know, listen, this isn't the solution. You know, prayer is better for you to do than to just let yourself go off into, you know, where you don't have to think and worry about these things through your escape of sleep. And so this is for us that a good reminder that when we are going through difficulties, all the more reason to follow the example of Jesus and to pray. Not to try to escape from the reality, but to enter into it through prayer. So when Jesus, it's interesting and it's, it's fitting uh, the location that Jesus faces this temptation. He faces it in a garden. And there was another garden way back with our first parents, Adam and Eve. In Genesis, we read about it in Genesis chapter 3, and they're in the garden. And the temptation comes, and the temptation is to take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know that God had given the instruction to Adam of every tree he was free to eat. But not that one tree. He says, because God warned him, in the day you eat of it, you know, you will surely die. And, you know, Eve is the one who is tempted, but Adam is right there. And he fails every test of his temptation and every test of his responsibility. He falls on his face. And, you know, it's Adam who is given, you know, if you, you know, reading the book of Romans, um, you know, through one man, sin entered. And so it's put onto Adam's shoulders of his responsibility, his, his failure that brought sin into the world, and sin therefore passes to each and every one of us. And so when that temptation came in the Garden of Eden, Adam failed the test. But when the temptation came for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, through agony, through prayer, he passed. He passed that test. Willing to go to the cross on our behalf. And so, you know, this is the beautiful thing that, you know, you have this contrast 
that ultimately what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane and what Jesus did at the cross of Calvary is greater than what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. We also have here again just a reminder of what to do when we're tempted. Because temptation is normal and natural for every man, but the Word of God promises you will not be tempted beyond what you are able to handle, but with the temptation, there will be provided a way of escape. That's a promise of God for us, but we take a, a note from the life of Jesus himself. Where do we find victory over temptation? When, when Jesus was, was tempted in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, how did he have victory? Well, you know, we know he had been there to pray, so we know he was fully prayed, prayed up, you know, prepared for the temptation through prayer. And then he uses the word of God from the Old Testament. He knows the truth. He uses the truth to withstand that temptation. And then here in the garden, again, we see prayer as the tool used to overcome temptation. So if we are prayed up, if you begin your day with prayer, you end your day with, it, with prayer, and throughout your day you're in an attitude of prayer, it's going to be hard for temptation to overcome you. But if you're not in communion with God, you know, if I'm not in communion with God and we're, we're just kind of going along, when temptation comes and we don't seek that immediate way of escape that has been given, we are very likely to fail and to fall. And remember this, that um, as we move forward in this story today, in this lesson today, that Peter here had an opportunity to prepare for what was coming through prayer, but instead he is sleeping. And that is significant. What happens? So let's pick up in verse 47. It says, While he was, Jesus was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and who, who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Stopping there for a moment, again, going back to that intimacy. Judas betraying Jesus, you know, with the bread, you know, dipped, and partaking of that. And then leaving, you know, to go and find the chief priest and say, I know where they're going to go. I know where they're going to be. Here's the opportunity to take Jesus. And then that the signal of, you know, here's the one identifying clearly in the darkness that this is, this one is Jesus. This is the one you are looking for. There will be no mistake made about this. That the signal would be the one whom he kissed. Again, the intimacy of the betrayal. And, you know, and, it's, and it's, you know, we, we understand this as humans, that, you know, if somebody you don't really know says something mean about you or this is you or whatever, you're kind of like, eh, that didn't feel very nice. I didn't really like that, but now moving on with my day. But if somebody very close to you betrays you or hurts you, especially if it's an intentional hurt, where they know it's going to hurt you, they know fully what they're doing, and it's, 
you know, it's just right in your face. Well, that's a different level. That's, that's a different level of, of pain that that brings. You know, it, it hurts because they're like a family. And so that, that, you know, it's just, man, you can see that ultimately, and we, and we see a contrast between Judas and Peter, but you, you see really that there's no love, that Judas has no love for Jesus. He has no love for him. It's just not there. It doesn't exist. Because there's no way he could do these things if there was any love for Jesus present in his life. In verse 49, it says, When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? We brought two of them against this big crowd of people. I'm, I'm adding in there, sorry. But, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, ultimately, no, it's Peter. One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And, you know, and you can see almost with comments like, I said I'd go to prison. I said I'd go to death. You know, cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Even then, I mean, you just, I mean, wow. Even here you see Jesus loving his enemies. These people are coming to take him to the cross. You know, they're coming for his death. And you see Jesus loving them and loving this man and healing him. And Jesus, Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And so he speaks this prophetic word against them. Hey, you're doing this in dark, the darkness. You're doing this in secret because you know, you've had a plan. You, haven't, you know you haven't had the power to be able to do it. But now this is the hour of darkness. I mean, that is a prophetic slap to the face of these men who are supposed to be religious leaders. They're supposed to be you know, following you know, the way of, of you know, the law and doing things in a proper way. Supposed to be doing things for God. And you see this contrast while they are coming to kill him and destroy them that Jesus even still is looking to heal them and to love them. Jesus makes it clear that the power of darkness had been restrained until now. But now is the time for him to begin the path to the cross for the payment of our sins. And so darkness is allowed to do what it wants to do. So we have here verse 54, and this is our last section for, tonight, for today. It says, having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. And now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. 
And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied Jesus, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the words of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so Peter went out and wept bitterly. And so again, you know, you can see, you know, the, the disciples we know have been scattered basically at this point. You know, once they arrested Jesus, it's almost, a, you know, an every man for himself, you know, scenario. Yet Peter follows at a distance. He's still trying to follow through on what he said he would do. And now he's, you know, he's in this courtyard. There's a fire going. His face can be seen. And at first, it's a servant girl who says, this man was also with him. And then two others, you know, as time goes on, you know, agree and accuse him. Matthew records that Peter cursed and swore before saying, man, I do not know what you are saying. Because when they're saying, you're one of them, or you know, you were with him or you knew him. They're, they're not just accusing him of, hey, you, know, you, you were one of the people in the crowd that you heard his teaching. They are accusing that, that Jesus is one, I mean, that Peter is one of the disciples, that he is intimately connected with them. That he doesn't just know about Jesus, but that he knows Jesus. We have this understanding, you know, in, in the scripture, you know, that, that here this is an, about an intimate, you know, fellowship that Peter is connected to Jesus. And so here's something we see that we learn about Peter is that, you know, when there were other people around him, in fact, like he had the support of his community, of the other disciples, of the other people, you know, he'd be the first one off the boat. He'd be the first one, you know, to pull out his sword and, you know, chop off an an ear. But that doesn't mean that when he's the only one there that he has the strength to stand. He doesn't. He doesn't. When 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 he's alone and he's on his own, We already know he had been sleeping when he should have been praying. When he's alone and on his own, he doesn't have the strength. And that pressure comes, and it's an intense pressure. Because he knows at this point what's going to happen. He knows that they are not going to let Jesus out of their alive. He knows that he's not just theoretically anymore talking about what he would think he would do in a situation. He's in the situation. And at this point, a servant girl can get him to deny Jesus.
Two others affirm it. He curses, he swears, saying, man, I do not know what you are saying. Don't want to be too hard on Peter because you know it's a natural fear. It's a natural, you know, self-preservation is kind of a natural desire, right? I mean, pretty human. But for this to take place, to preserve himself, he has to create a distance between himself and Jesus. Now, when the rooster crows, it says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Ooh. Man. To be, to, I mean, that scene where, where Jesus looks at him, I mean, I, we have no idea what it felt like to be Peter. We have no idea what that could... I mean, there, you know, if you've ever received a look of disappointment from somebody that you, you know, respected or loved, like, a, you know... Maybe your mother looked at you one day just kind of like, you did what? And gave you a particular look and it took you to your knees. You know, but that's nothing compared to what this is. He had, Peter had utterly fallen. In that moment, he defined what it means to be unfaithful to Jesus. Look up unfaithful to Jesus in, the, in a Bible dictionary. You know, you could have Peter and this scene right here. You know, Peter and this scene right here. That's the def- definition that defines it. So here's a question for each of us today. Have you ever been in a situation where you wanted to distance yourself from Jesus? Situation where you didn't want others to know that you knew him. Or a situation where you didn't want others to know what you believe about him. Because you knew that, you know, the, maybe the, the mockery or the ridicule, the, the being made fun of that would come for that. Or that that person had a position of power or maybe could decide whether or not you got a, a job or not or a raise or not. Or maybe you're just afraid that somebody wouldn't like you or wouldn't want to be your friend. If maybe you failed, maybe I failed that test. Maybe we can identify with Peter on this one more than we would like to be able to. Just remember that this isn't the end of the story in Peter's life. Now Luke told us you know, that Jesus says, you know, you're going to be restored, and when you're restored, you know, go and help the others. But, you know, I'm going to bring this up today because Luke, we will go through the rest of the book and, you know, we don't really have much in here anymore about, you know, Peter and his restoration. We know that he is. There's nothing there to know that he's restored, but we don't get the details of that. John 21 gives us the details of that. I encourage you to go back and read John 21, you know, this afternoon to really grab, you know, all of that. But I'm just going to give you a short summary of it. Is, you know, we find Peter there where Jesus first found Peter, fishing. He's gone back fishing. And the Lord had called him and you know, said he's going to make him fishers of men. 
but Peter, you know, after his, you know, his, you know, he, he's waiting for what's happening, you know, to come next, and, and he's back doing, you know, he's just gone fishing. But Jesus comes and gives him another big catch, and we know Peter's out of the boat and in the water and getting ashore and getting to be with Jesus. And then Jesus restores him. He gives him, you know, some words about, you know, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord. And and Jesus tells him to feed my sheep. And it's an interesting thing there with the language because, you know, in the Greek there's these different words for love. And Jesus twice asks him, do you love me with, you know, an agape love and become an ultimate godly love. And Peter responds each time with phileo, I, I love you with a brotherly love. And then the third time, Jesus comes down to where Peter is and uses the same, do you love me, phileo, love. And Peter says, yes. You know, you know he's hurt by being asked the question so many times, but he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Remember that it's Peter who's given the privilege to preach the main message at Pentecost where we have the birth of the church, where before he had denied that he knew Jesus, that he's willing to stand up in front of, you know, all, you know Israel is there from all over the world. People have come, you know, for the, for the feast at Pentecost. And, you know, the, the, the leaders of Israel are still there. And, and, you know, Peter gets up. And he gives, you know, one of the most powerful, you know, messages that you'll, you'll ever, ever hear. Look in Acts chapter 2. And so what I, what I really want us to get from this is that, you know, we never want to assume failure. We never want to make excuse for failure. We want to, never want to set ourselves up for failure. We also have to recognize that failure is not the end of the story. That we shouldn't, you know, write you know, people off or write ourselves off when there's, you know, failure to be faithful, you know, to Jesus. Especially when there is a true love for Jesus present. You know, each time when Peter says, you know, Jesus, you know that I love you. He's not lying. He's telling the truth in this. We know that Peter had gone out and, you know, he had, after he had fallen, that he had wept bitterly. You know, his, his heart and attitude was of immediate repentance when he had recognized his fall. And so, you know, we have this great contrast because between Judas and Peter. Because, you know, Judas had no love for Jesus, intentionally betrayed him. And then there is a sorrow that he has that we read about, but, it, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a worldly sorrow. It's a sorrow of consequence. It's a sorrow of conscience but it's not a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. It's not a godly sorrow that leads to restoration. 
it's a futile type of sorrow. But we see the contrast, though, that Peter has a true love for Jesus, that he, he fails under the, the pressure, but it's not his desire to fail. His desire is to, to please God. And so it's an, you know, it's an honest failure that there's repentance after he falls and there's a restoration that takes place after he falls. And, you know, the difference is, the difference, though some of their actions may seem similar, the heart of Judas and the heart of Peter couldn't be further apart. And Jesus knew clearly the heart of each. And so this morning we want to remember that if we fail as, as Peter did, if we have in the past, it's not the end of the story. We can be restored, that God is good, he is faithful. You know, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, really the primary context of that verse is for those who are followers of Jesus already. But, you know, it's just, you know, when you become a follower of Jesus, it doesn't mean you don't, you don't sin anymore or you don't make any more mistakes. You don't have any more failures. Of course you do. Um, but you have that relationship, you know, with, with Jesus that covers all of that. And, and it brings about restoration um, quickly is the goal you know, that's one of the reasons we take the bread and the cup. In, in 1 Corinthians, it tells us before we take it to examine our hearts, you know, so that we can confess our sins, so that we can be cleansed before we take it. And that's just about, you know, cleansing ourselves as we go along the way. If you remember, um, though it's not recorded in the book of Luke, in, in John, we see Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And with, again, going back to Peter, when he said, Jesus goes to wash his feet and says, No, Lord, not me. Don't wash my feet. He says, you know, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. And he says, well, no, not, not just my feet, but my whole body. <laughs> I'm ready for a bath, you know. And, um, you know, Jesus says to him back, you know, basically, you're clean. You don't need that. But going in the world, you know, you're going to get your feet dirty. You know, it's a common thing in those days. People wore, you know, sandals on dirt roads all the time. So you went into someone's house. First thing you do is wash your feet off so you didn't get their house all dirty. Well, you know, here this is what we have. You know, this bread and this cup is for people who have put their faith in Jesus already, who have believed in him. But still, as we go through life, we're going to get our feet dirty. So we come and we say, Lord, my feet are dirty. Please wash my feet. Cleanse me before you. And we take the bread and the cup in remembrance of Jesus. But if you don't know Jesus, know him intimately, then the first thing you have to do is come into a relationship with him through faith, you know, to believe in him, to have your whole self cleansed. And then once that's happened, of course, now we begin to take the bread and the cup. Now we begin to keep these short accounts, you know, with God where we are renewed and refreshed by him. And so uh, please keep these things in mind this morning as we remember what Jesus did for us, the cost that he went through. With, with great agony and great anguish, Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. We give him thanks for that.
If you don't know Jesus yet today, you are invited. Jesus invites you to come into a new life with him through faith. Just to say, Lord, I need you to cleanse all of me. I believe in you. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, that you rose from the dead. Will you forgive me, Lord, and give me new life? And certainly he will. And this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus like me, you know, this week, maybe you got your feet dirty. And you say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I was impatient. I'm sorry that I had a bad attitude. I'm sorry for the, you know, this or that or the other thing. Be cleansed and take it. If there's somebody else that you've offended along the way, then, of course, you need to go to that person and say, hey, I'm sorry. You know, God cares about our relationships with people and that we admit when we're wrong. And so let's strive to do that in our lives. And, you know, if sometimes um, you know, we offend people without even knowing we've offended people. And so we need, you know, our brothers and sisters of Christ to come to us and say, hey, look, you've offended me. You know, and then we can, we can work that out and get things straight. But let nothing hinder us from taking and remembering that Jesus is our Savior.